This is episode number 231, Training the Pelvic Floor for Performance with Kareen Wade. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Especially in road cyclists, that hunched over kind of position on the bike, that's where I see the diaphragm stops having optimal range of motion and excursion. Again, I tell patients, tight is not strong. You can have very tight hip pelvic floor and abdominal muscles and actually have a lot of weakness. So that whole idea that tight is strong is a total myth. Tight is just tight. I've been doing a lot of thinking about what the words high performance actually means because you hear that term thrown around a lot and I use it in this podcast for many years. So I wrote down what high performance means to me and it means doing a lot of internal work through the vehicle of challenges, whether it be in sport or in business or in daily life so that I can know and work on myself. I can work on my thoughts, my actions, my focus, and my attitude. And I define success or high performance by committing to a process of growth and improvement where I show up every day and do my best. My best one day may be different than my best another day due to life's different inputs. And that's certainly the case these days is my best right now might not be what it was like two years ago. The mindset of high performance is about commitment, learning, right effort, personal accountability, humbleness, optimism, and gratitude. And the lifestyle of high performance is treating your body well with physical training, a mindfulness practice, eating healthy, and sleeping. And I also derive that you don't have to be the best to be a high performer. What does high performance mean to you? And that is something that was important for me to define again, because that is what this podcast is about. It's about high performance living and all of the things that I just talked about have been topics and continue to be topics on this show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the show if you're enjoying this podcast. And if you're brand new to the show, welcome. We're really happy to have you here. If you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter, you might have seen that I have officially launched my Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. It is an online course about how to train mental toughness. And one of the biggest questions people ask me all the time is, how do you stay so positive? How do you get through these really hard things in life and seem to come out with a smile on your face and being able to take away the good lessons from it? And that is 100% through the mindset and all the work that I've done. And I'm so excited to show you and give you all of the tools over six years of research in positive psychology, sports psychology, mindfulness-based training techniques, so that you can be better in all of your challenges too. I also have personally taken some online courses on mental toughness and wanted to make sure that my course was unique and was able to be something that you could put into action today. And when you enroll in the course, you also get a free workbook. And for a limited time, I'm offering flagship pricing. So you can go to sonyalooney.com and you will see Mindset Academy. It's also at moxieandgrit.com and it's also in the show notes. And I can't wait to see you guys in the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. And one last thing before we get into today's guest, big thank you to those of you who are supporting my work financially with your donations on PayPal and Patreon. That does not go unnoticed every single month, and it really does make a difference. I have an incredibly professional audio producer, and Roma has done an amazing job since episode one. He's also a professional musician, so all of your donations go to pay some of his salary. So thank you so much to those of you helping out. If you want to donate, you can go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts 
and you'll see the buttons on where to do that. All right, folks, pelvic health. Pelvic health and training the pelvic floor was something I thought only applied to pregnancy and postpartum women. So when I became pregnant, I did my due diligence and I went to see not one, but two pelvic floor physios to learn as much as I could about it. And during pregnancy, it was mostly about education. But once I had my baby, it was time to do the real work. I had some initial symptoms after having my baby, some that disappeared on their own and some that mandated professional help that have since been resolved due to the professional help that I received. But the thing about pelvic health is that it isn't just for women and it isn't just for pregnancy. If you're an athlete, you might be missing a key piece of making your body work for you. And I learned that the pelvic floor isn't just the muscles in your pelvis. It isn't just for women. It's how your entire core works in synchronicity, your diaphragm and breathing coordination with your abdominal muscles and pelvic floor muscles. And that gives you a lot more power. In general, many athletes have tighter pelvic floor muscles, and I've always had a tendency towards flared ribs, a tight thoracic spine, and pectoral muscles, and I found that retraining, or rather training my pelvic floor for the first time, resulted in me getting stronger and being more coordinated so that I could use my core and breathe better. And it's something that I'm going to continue to work on throughout the rest of my athletic career. And that's where I met Kareen Wade. I went to see her postpartum to make sure that I came back even stronger. Kareen is a registered physiotherapist and has specialized in pelvic health for over 25 years. She is the proud owner of Care Physiotherapy and provides high-quality pelvic floor rehabilitation and treatment to men and women with pelvic floor pain and dysfunction. She's passionate about women's health and has a keen interest in helping women and female athletes strengthen their core and pelvic floor muscles postpartum. Kareen frequently lectures on many topics, including male and female incontinence, core strengthening, injuries related to pregnancy, and male and female sexual dysfunction. She's a member of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, the Canadian Continence Foundation, the International Pelvic Pain Society, and the Canadian Society of Intestinal Research. I really clicked with Kareen because she really is an expert in working with athletes and having that lens is something that motivates me and knowing that this is something that's going to impact my athletic career for the future and knowing how and why and what I can do to continue growing has been so, so cool. And I'm just so excited to continue learning from her. That said, it's really important that you have a comfortable relationship with the pelvic floor physio that you're working with because you are dealing with some personal stuff and it might take going to see a few different people to find the right relationship. And there are a lot more than you think out there, a lot more physiotherapists or physical therapists that perform this type of work. So check it out, go visit one and just get an assessment and see where you're at. In this podcast, we talked about what is the pelvic floor and how it works, how to breathe properly, We addressed a common but not often talked about issue, and that is painful sex. We talked about some stretches to address a tight thoracic spine, which is really normal for people that sit at a desk, for cyclists, for pretty much everybody. And then we got into myth busting around pelvic health, which was really fun and really important. And lastly, we talked about expectations around pregnancy and fitness, debunking the fear around diastasis recti, talking about prolapse, and we also talked about Kegels. Whether you're male or female, there is definitely something in this episode for you. And also make sure you check out the show notes at sonyalooney.com slash podcasts because Kareen has diligently offered up some really amazing resources and apps that are useful, especially for pregnancy. And also I wrote a three-part series for Velo News in their Velo Pass program. And one of them was specifically about pelvic health and coming back from pregnancy. 
Here's Corrine. Corrine, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm super excited to get into talking about the pelvic floor because I feel like it's one of those things like getting your period or something that people don't really talk about very often. And pelvic floor health, I've learned so, so much about it just from you know approaching it as a pregnant person, but I wish that I had learned about it even before I got pregnant. So I'm excited for you to educate everybody listening. Awesome. Me too. So I guess the, the best place to start is asking what is the pelvic floor? Good question. And without getting into the, you know, nitty gritty, essentially the pelvic floor is like a hammock or a sling that essentially goes from the pubic bone at the front to the tailbone at the back. And what I tell my patients, which is kind of mind blowing, is essentially for men and women, your whole undercarriage, it's muscle. So that is pretty mind blowing, right? (laughs) That the whole underside of our body is connective tissue, muscle, ligament, fascia, but there's, you know, that's what's holding us all together. Actually, if those muscles aren't working properly, yeah, it's crazy. If we don't have that support, and again, not just for women, yeah, if we don't have that support, then our organs have no support. And actually, the pelvic floor is one of our most important core muscles. So for high-level athletes especially, if people aren't optimizing their pelvic floor, even if they never want to have a baby, I think it's one of the most important things. If you want to optimize your performance and you're not looking at the pelvic floor, it's like it's not looking at the abdominal muscles as far as for any sport. And how is it all interconnected? Because before I went to see you, I didn't know that they were all interconnected. You mentioned the pelvic floor is like a, a group of muscles in the pelvis, but you also mentioned core muscles. So how is it all interconnected? It's kind of, I tell people, it's kind of like an orchestra. Essentially, the muscles have to orchestrate and synchronize together. So the diaphragm is at the top. So imagine like a piston or for the, you know, the mountain bikers out there, like a shock absorber. Pelvic floor is at the bottom, diaphragms at the top of this essential piston or shock absorber, abdominal muscles at the front, and the deep back muscles at the back. So those muscles all, but also dynamically, actually synchronize together. They need to synchronize together when we're doing sports. Or for example, if you laugh or cough or sneeze, the diaphragm and pelvic floor and the abdominal muscles have to control that pressure. And I think that's what most people don't understand is it's our ability to control pressure that actually gives us strength, like core strength. And that core strength is not static, meaning we need those muscles dynamically. Every time you take a deep breath as you're riding your bike, those muscles need to actually be activating to give you power. Yeah. And something else that I thought was really interesting is the mechanics of taking a proper breath. And through like yoga and meditation, I always heard belly breathing, like breathe through your belly. So I would do that. But then it wasn't until I saw pelvic floor physio and also I saw a physical trainer who worked in the DNS, the dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, that I realized that I wasn't actually taking a breath properly. So can you can you talk about how to actually take a proper breath? Definitely. And you're right. It's it's one of my peeves that a lot of belly breathing is taught. But what I tell my patients, as I say, you know what, your diaphragm is not in your belly. (laughs) So anatomically, the diaphragm is like a big upside down bowl and it's attached on the underside. It's attached to your ribs. So what I tell my patients is the best thing is to put your hands on the side of your ribs. So everyone can even do this right now. And I want your hands on the side of your ribs. When you inhale, the ribs should expand like an umbrella. 
So think of an umbrella. It, it expands 360 degrees around the whole umbrella, the, the front, the sides, the back. So upon inhalation, rib cage expands and the pelvic floor lengthens and relaxes. So this is like the expansion part. Then as you exhale, you should feel your rib cage and your hands kind of come back together. And that's, and that's when the pelvic floor tightens. So kind of like a corset or an umbrella tightening and closing upon exhalation. And then upon inhalation, it expands and the pelvic floor lengthens. And it's this pumping effect that actually, again, is going to redistribute pressure, but actually acts like a sump pump to decrease pelvic congestion. So a lot of women, when they're pregnant, they might say, ugh, you know, I feel like there's so much throbbing or swelling in my pelvis or in my labia, or it just feels heavy. So actually a, a proper breath can actually help our blood vessels and lymphatic vessels decompress. But again, it's actually allowing those core muscles to function. So you're right, the diaphragm, it's important for our rest and digest part of the nervous system. It's actually mechanically helping us. And again, I think we we underestimate the ability of the diaphragm and a breath to relax us. So a lot of my patients, if they're under a lot of emotional stress, they actually hold tension in their pelvic floor. And this can actually weaken their core muscles if they're holding that tension for a long time, or it could cause pain. Yeah. And in cyclists, I hear it's a common problem that cyclists don't engage their core properly. And this isn't just women. I actually have heard this the most from men who have you know, had back problems or just had these problems in their life. And they finally went to see a physio and they realized that it was actually a disconnect between their pelvic floor and their diaphragm that was causing this this weakness and this pain. Have have you or, or what advice do you have for men? Because a lot of times women are the ones who whose ears perk up when they hear pelvic floor and men are like, well, I don't get pregnant, so I don't need to worry about it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I treat a lot of men on my caseload and I treat a significant number of triathletes and cyclists, and that can be pelvic floor tension or pain. And that might manifest for men and for women too. Like for men and women, it could be tailbone pain, pubic bone pain. They might actually be getting a pudendal neuralgia. So that can be when your pudendal nerve actually gets compressed. Not only, I think a lot of people think it's the, just the bike seat, causing the compression. But imagine if your pelvic floor muscles are gripping, that's already causing compression on the nerve. And then on top of it, you're sitting on that saddle for hours and hours. And then my male patients specifically will say, Kareen, it feels like there's a golf ball at the base of my scrotum, or it feels like I get pain maybe with ejaculation, or if I'm trying to urinate or after a bowel movement. So because the pelvic floor is responsible for um, bowel bladder health and sexual function, for a lot of people, the symptoms can kind of be anywhere in that undercarriage. So if any of your listeners, male or female, are experiencing pain anywhere in the pelvis, actually seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist can have significant impact. And you're right. It's that, especially in road cyclists, that hunched over kind of position on the bike. That's where I see the diaphragm stops having um, optimal range of motion and excursion. And they're Again, I tell patients, tight is not strong. <laughs> you can have very tight hip, pelvic floor, and abdominal muscles and actually have a lot of weakness. So that whole idea that tight is strong is a total myth. Tight is just tight. <laughs> and you alluded to some sexual dysfunction and painful sex. And I think we should just get right into it because people don't ever talk about sex. They don't talk yeah. about like if it hurts and... 
Yeah. So I, I'd love to just hear some common complaints from men and women and what those could be from. Totally. So for women, and again, this can be women that have never had a child. So I think there's a misconception that pain with intercourse only happens when you've had a vaginal birth. And that's not true. I treat many women that have never had a child and they might have pelvic floor tension. Now, sometimes this could be habitual tension from a sport that they've done. So I see this a lot in women that maybe have done horseback riding or ballet, gymnastics, figure skating, even bicycle riding, anything. Because imagine bike riding, you're kind of activating your inner thighs to keep, especially like mountain biking, right? Where you're going over jumps or navigating uh, difficult terrain. So what can happen is kind of overflow tension from those other muscle groups to the pelvic floor. And imagine for vaginal penetration, it's hard to get, whether it be a penis or a toy or a finger vaginally, if those muscles can't relax. So that pain could be upon initial penetration, or it could be with orgasm. So I have some women, they say, oh, actually, I can't orgasm because it really hurts. And that's because those muscles aren't letting go appropriately back to baseline. So it would be like if you went to the gym and did a whole bunch of bicep curls, and you just never stop doing the bicep curls, you never let your arm actually rest after going to the gym, you'd actually start to have pain, right? So that's what happens for women. For men, they might have pain with erections. They might feel like their erections aren't as hard anymore, because actually now the muscles are so tight. If you think of it, kind of like a garden hose, if you step on it in the garden hose, the water can't flow. So for men, the blood flow that they need to get into the penis for erection, for a lot of my patients can't happen if there's tension. So I tell all patients, no pain should, sorry, no intercourse should hurt. And that could be intercourse on the outside. Any touching of the external genitalia should not hurt. And any penetrative intercourse should never hurt, no matter what gender. And if that's true, then to definitely, again, I do as much as I can to speak about this, to let people know this is a common problem and to definitely speak to your healthcare provider. Or if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then actually, depending where you live, to actually connect with a pelvic floor physiotherapist, because it's one of the most common things we treat. But Sonia's right. A lot of people aren't talking about it because they're too embarrassed. Yeah. And there's other things, and we'll get into this in even more detail, but like urine incontinence, like whenever you're out running or or whatever, yeah. and like stuff leaks out and no one ever talks about that. And people just say like, oh, well, sex hurts or, oh, well, I pee a little bit whenever I jump up and down or when I run. Oh, well. And that's just not acceptable whenever there is amazing education and practitioners out there who can help you. Yeah. And, you know, I tell my patients, too, that as physiotherapists, we treat all patients like the whole person, not not just physically. Right. And so what I see, which just breaks my heart, is when men or women have pain with intercourse, that can really break down your relationship with your partner. So now this becomes an emotional disconnect with the partner. And of course, if something hurts, we're going to avoid it. And then urinary incontinence. I have so many women that they say, you know what, I'm afraid to leak urine while having intercourse. It's one thing to be embarrassed about leaking urine when you're at the gym or out for a run. But if you're afraid that you're going to leak urine on your partner or um, me, myself, when I had my 14-year-old, I had such a bad anal tear and rectal prolapse, I was fecally incontinent. And this is a huge problem too. So if we think nobody talks about leaking urine, imagine how, how little people are talking about, what about leaking fecal matter? Um, and that is mortifying if that happens during intercourse or if you're at the gym and all of a sudden you can't control that. That's a really hard thing to hide. I also treat women that can't control their flatulence. So again, 
this happened to me after having my first child, I had such bad damage that if I had, I could not control my gas, it would just leak out when I didn't want to. And that is so embarrassing. And that can really chip away at someone's self-esteem. So again, for anyone listening, this is not only a physical problem. I think it's, it really changes how you feel about yourself and your body and your confidence. Thanks for saying that. I think that's a really important point. And I'm sure that for you, you know, there's all different types of personalities that you interact with when they come see you and you have to create a space where they can feel comfortable talking about their shame or their embarrassment. I was just curious how you do that. Well, that's a good question. So one of the one of the things I do um, before anyone comes to see me is I have them fill out a quite extensive online history questionnaire. And what that really helps me do is not only look at physically what symptoms are happening, but what is going on in their relationships? What's going on at work? How is it affecting their sense of self, but also anxiety, right? And, you know, even even just two days ago, I had a patient that on her form, all she said was that she was experiencing incontinence. But once we got talking and once I was even only examining her external muscles, so her hip and butt muscles and inner thigh muscles were so tight and so guarded, I said, you know, if it's okay, so I always create that sense of the patient's in control and they guide the conversation. And I always ask, is this okay for me to ask this? Is this appropriate? And if it's not, then we stop the discussion. But I asked her, I said, if it's okay, do you mind me asking, do you have pain with intercourse? Because I'm seeing a lot of tension on the outside of your body. And she said, well, yeah, I've always had pain with intercourse. Isn't, isn't that normal? Like, that's what I've always experienced. So I do try to create a safe space, a space of compassionate listening. So I do a lot of listening to tease out information. And maybe that might not come out to the, until the fifth treatment. And that's okay. So we don't rush anything. If I have patients that say, Kareen, I don't feel comfortable having any internal exam. I say, that's no problem. Because I can usually identify even from the outside of the body where I'm seeing patterns of holding. So yeah, I, I definitely let the patient lead the way and, and they guide me. Okay, and I'm going to zoom out now back to talking about the pelvic floor and the core and the diaphragm and breathing, because I think that painful sex is something we should talk about. And I'm glad that we did. But there might be people saying, well, I, I don't experience that, but I'm still really interested in breathing so that I can have better athletic performance. But cyclists in particular have tight rib cage, have tight even like pectoral muscles and T-spine and those things can affect how you take a breath. And those things can ultimately, you know, inhibit diaphragmatic movement and that elsewhere. So how can people work on that? Because I know most people listening probably have those types of issues. So what I often try to do is um, in my assessment is really look at posture. Like it's a ton of looking at alignment, rib movement, thoracic movement, but even giving patients strategies on how to stretch that at home and how to get out of the position they most often are in. So if a person's spending quite a few hours um, on the bike, I tend to look at whatever posture that would look like, depending if it's a road cyclist or a mountain biker, and then give them exercises and stretches that are going to reverse that posture. So none of us can be in the same posture all day. And if most cyclists add up the hours that they spend on a bicycle, <laughs> that's going to involve certain muscle groups. Like you say, the pecs, it's going to be um, sometimes the shoulders are elevated. There's going to be a lot of neck tension. Often the pelvis is kind of tipped back. A lot of my cyclists, they, they have a really kind of stiff lower back, but also they can't move their pelvis in and out of different positions. 
So sometimes I'll even do bike assessment fitting with patients or I'll get them to take a few pictures even at home of what they look like, even if they're on an indoor trainer and really work at optimizing their alignment so they get more glute power. Because I tell my patients, your glutes are like the BFF to your pelvic floor. (laughs) So if you're not in an optimal pelvic position on the bike, that's going to affect your thoracic and neck position, but it's also going to actually affect how much power you're able to exert on a ride. That could be from your VO2 max. So again, if, you're, if your ribs aren't moving, you're not going to get optimal cardiovascular uh, optimization. But also if, if you can't tap into your glutes and they're in a position that are inhibited, same thing. You're going to feel like you just can't generate power on the rides like you maybe you used to, let's say, before having a baby. So that's what I see. Pregnancy can really change your pelvic alignment and posture, but just the way you hold your body. So for sure, for diaphragm, rib cage, shoulders, thoracic, but also the pelvis because the two of them kind of work together. So that might be, for example, something easy getting on a foam roller and stretching out the pecs and really trying to say, okay, can I get some flexibility in my spine? I don't want it only, a lot of cyclists, they can only kind of hunch forward like Lance Armstrong, (laughs) right? If I get them to extend the other way, the opposite of how you're flexed on a bicycle, sometimes that is a difficult position for cyclists. So yoga is great, foam roller for stretching, and that could be taking work breaks to stretch or stretching out after a ride. But again, even getting someone to assess your position on the bike, maybe if there's been a change like pregnancy. Yeah. And okay, so you you said that laying on your back on a foam roller so you can stretch out your pecs or doing yoga are two ways that just general ways people can start addressing that without actually seeing a a therapist. Right. Yeah. And um, my favorite way, because there's two ways to lie on a roller, you could lie. My favorite way is to lie with the roller going from your head to your tailbone so it's lengthwise along your spine and the reason I like that is because um, a lot of cyclists tend to lean off to one side if they're kind of dominant if they tend to pedal stroke stronger on one side and then you can lay on it horizontally so going across your almost your bra strap area horizontally so try both and even stretching over a therapy ball so let's say if you're lying on a therapy ball face up and stretching your pecs out that way but again it's kind of doing the opposite posture to what you would be on a bicycle because you want you want to balance out those muscles. Okay. Now, I want to take the rest of the time uh, to, to really be focused on pregnancy and postpartum health and also to talk about some myth-busting because there's a lot of assumptions or just lack of education around this. So what are some of the common myths about the pelvic floor as it relates to pregnancy and postpartum health? Uh, Well, let's say I'd say, well, the first myth I'd like to bust is that you only need to see a physio if you've had a baby. (laughs) So definitely, like I said before, I think we all need to be assessed to get a good baseline for optimal performance. But the second myth would be even women that have a baby via C-section need to see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And that's because your body is still holding the baby through that whole gestation period. So the pelvic floor can weaken just from the weight of the baby. So even if you don't birth your baby vaginally, it's really important to see a pelvic floor physio. And again, I think a lot of women think, oh, I only have to see the physio after I have my baby. Not true. I encourage women, even before they think of having a baby, even before they get pregnant, to get assessed, get your posture assessed. It can even help with your fertility. So imagine if your pelvic floor muscles are quite tight and the fascia is quite tight, that could change the tension around your fallopian tubes or 
again, if the muscles are too tight, intercourse might hurt. So you might not even want to have intercourse with your partner. So I think that those are some big myths there that it's only after you have a baby to see a therapist. Again, that's not true. And during pregnancy, it's so important. It can actually decrease the chance of having an episiotomy, decrease the chance of tearing as babies coming out vaginally. It can decrease the length of labor. Because imagine if the pelvic floor muscles are too tight, which is really common in women that do a lot of fitness, baby might come down, bounce off the pelvic floor, bounces back up, tries to come down the birth canal, bounces back up. So a lot of what I do in my clinic with patients is teach them how to relax their pelvic floor so they can have an optimal birth. I'd say the other myth is that we already discussed is that it's only females that need pelvic floor physios. That's not true. I'd say men, and we talked about why that is, but also I treat a lot of people who maybe whatever gender they were born with may change. So let's say if they were born as a man biologically, but they choose to transition and choose to have surgery that lets them transition and allows them to transition to to becoming a female, that too. So it's for anybody. Anybody can benefit from pelvic floor physio. And the other myth is that, yeah, leaking urine is normal. That's not normal at all. That's a huge myth I hear. Leaking is common, not normal. And then the other thing, I think the other myth is that people think, oh, I'm too old to have pelvic floor physio, even though I'm leaking and I'm, I'm postmenopausal. It's never too late to start. So I treat um, so many women during menopause that are leaking urine. And that can be because of hormone changes. So hormone changes after um, having a baby can impact your the amount you leak or the or the chance that you can leak urine, but also after menopause. I've had women that I've treated in their late 80s, even early 90s, and we can make an impact. So that's one of the other myths. It's never too late to start. I love that. I think that that's such a, a great point because, yeah, people probably think, well, I had a baby like 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's not going to help if I go now. Yeah. I think what's interesting too is you know, there's that myth that like, oh, after menopause, sex doesn't exist. And that's so tragically not, that's like so sad to hear that. I have many patients that are having vibrant, amazing sex lives <laughs> after menopause. But a lot of that has to do with if they feel confident, if they're not leaking, right? And they've seen a pelvic floor physio or that they're not experiencing pelvic organ prolapse. And that's when the organs don't have support anymore. And they start either sagging down and getting really heavy or actually visibly exiting through the vaginal canal. So women will say, oh my goodness, I can see something coming out of my vagina. And that's common after pregnancy. So I really want to educate women. I can't tell you how many women I talk to that are pregnant. And I'll say to them, okay, let's preventatively, let's be proactive. Let's prevent prolapse from happening. And pro who? Pro what? what? What's the prolapse? And I'll say, oh my goodness, you're about to have this baby and nobody has educated you about prolapse. So I think as physiotherapists, we spend a lot of time educating and prevention, prevention, prevention. If that's, if that's the biggest take-home piece I can give to everyone is, yeah, don't wait till you have symptoms. Just like you would, especially as elite athletes, just like you would go to a physiotherapist to get your knees or back checked before a race, right? I, I know a lot of elite, elite athletes that routinely go to get um, chiropractic adjustments or whatever it is. So they stay in optimal alignment and optimal function. That's where I think pelvic floor physiotherapy should definitely be in that mix. So you mentioned it's important to go see a pelvic floor physio while you're pregnant so that you can have better birth outcomes. You can 
learn how to relax tight pelvic floor muscles so that you can birth a baby easier. And also to educate yourself that way, whenever you do have a baby, you know what steps need to be taken in order to rehab better. What are some other expectations that pregnant women should have or that they shouldn't have while pregnant in regards to the pelvic floor? I think especially around fitness, there's a lot of misinformation out on the internet as to what women feel they can safely do during pregnancy regarding their pelvic floor. And that's really important. It depends on someone's baseline. So if I have someone who maybe has never exercised and um, has a a lower fitness level, their pelvic floor muscles might not be used to um, withstanding as much impact as like a marathon runner would. So I think that's one of the things, again, that requires assessment and education is fitness is so important during pregnancy and so healthy. Like finally, there's new guidelines coming out from the College of Obstetricians and Gynecology. We need to stay active. We need lifting weights during pregnancy, but we need to do it safely so that we're not causing too much stress or downward pressure on the pelvic floor. So I think that's what I see from a lot of women is they feel confused as to what they are allowed to safely do during pregnancy as far as fitness. And that's something that a pelvic floor physio does daily. Like I do that all the time. I'm always educating patients what they can safely do and maintain their fitness, depending even if they're an Olympic athlete, right? Compared to someone who maybe just likes to go for a casual walk a few times a week, building that fitness program for that patient prenatally during pregnancy, and then making sure they're doing that safely postpartum too. And what do you look for whenever you're building that program? So again, I I definitely look at what was their fitness level prior? Are there any contraindications that they're receiving from their gynecologist or midwife or doctor? And that could be, let's say, if someone's having twins or triplets, that fitness program is going to look a lot different. Or were they put on bed rest? Do they have placenta previa? So there can be things that are going on in the pregnancy that are going to change that how that person can do their fitness program. But if they don't have any contraindications, what I look at is how are their core muscles managing pressure? So what I mean by that is, let's say if they want to do deadlifts or they want to do, maybe they're doing squats or lunges, I will actually assess their abdominal walls. I'll watch what their rib cage, their abdominal muscles, diaphragm and pelvic floor are doing as they do those exercises. I often will even vaginally, intervaginally assess them as they do their exercises so that I can really tell, are they bearing down Are they holding their breath? And that's the worst thing you can do. If you're bearing down, causing downward pressure as you're doing your fitness, that's going to put you at higher risk for prolapse, but also higher risk for diastasis recti. And that's where the abdominal muscles at the six-pack muscles actually split. And that can happen because there's too much pressure happening in that canister of core muscles between the diaphragm, pelvic floor, deep abdominal and deep back muscles. So I think that's really important that diastasis recti, that's something pelvic floor physios also can do their best to prevent, but also treat postpartum if if someone does get um, some abdominal splitting. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of fear around diastasis recti. I had it. I was really, really nervous. I was afraid that I was going to have to get surgery. Like I just I just got way overly amped up about it and it just took care of itself on its own and it's gone. And a friend of mine was pregnant and she also, you know, she was a few months behind me. So she was, I had already had my baby and she told me that she had it and she was freaking out. So can you talk more about that to kind of take the fear out of it? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that. So actually in the research, they say that pretty much 
like 99.9, like every female is going to have some degree of stretching at the linea alba. And that's the fascia between the six pack muscles. And if you think of it, that makes sense. Like where else (laughs) we need to have that area have the ability to expand. Otherwise, where would the baby grow? So I think there is too much fear mongering going on on the internet. And I think one of the key researchers in diastasis recti research in Canada, her name's Diane Lee, and she lives in Vancouver. And I remember listening to a podcast once, and you know, she had a good point. She said, I think what would be better is before women get pregnant, they should be assessed to see what is the space at their linea alba? How much space do they have between their six pack muscles? Because there's huge variation. So not every person has six pack muscles that are totally tight together with no space, right? We all have variation in our bodies. So it makes sense to me too, what Diane Lee said. She said, imagine if we could do a baseline assessment of every female, see what is their interrecti distance. And that's the distance between the six pack muscles. Note that in the patient's chart. Then compare that and like postpartum. That would give a much more accurate representation because what's not fair to women is for them to think they're going from, let's say, zero, which would be six-pack muscles tight together, to then maybe postpartum a three-finger or a two-finger gap at their linea alba. That's just creating a lot of fear because maybe maybe when they were a teenager, they already had a two-finger gap. And that's normal for them. So I think that's what I think that's the misconception in the in the media that everyone thinks, oh, I have to have six pack muscles that are tightly glued together. And here's the other thing: in the research, they say that that in the first six to eight weeks after having a baby, there's a high percentage of women where their um, diastasis recti will naturally just come back together, just from the nature of hormones in the body and and the elastin and collagen in the tissues having a chance to snap back. So that's what I say to women. If they say to me, oh my God, can you check me? Can you see if I'm okay? And I'll say, look, don't don't panic. It's not only what you're seeing at the surface. In the research, what they're saying is it's not, it's not just what we see at the at the belly, and that's more the aesthetics of it. It's more so important what's happening at the deeper layers below. And I think that's where women need to understand, even if it looks like the diastasis at the skin level looks amazing call an ultrasound to look through the layers and actually see is that linea alba able to generate tension with let's say a curl up or a head lift and the way we do that is actually by engaging the diaphragm and pelvic floor muscles together so actually it's the pelvic floor muscles really help create tension at that abdominal uh, midline which sounds crazy right you'd think well what is what does my pelvic floor have to do with my diastasis recti it has everything to do with it which is really interesting. And that's so that's where I think, again, seeing a skilled professional that can help dispel some of the fear, because I don't want women being afraid to move, right? You still have to lift your baby and move throughout the day, right? And I don't want women feeling like, oh my goodness, I can't move because I'm afraid my six-pack muscles are going to be damaged, right? There's lots of things we can do physio-wise to help progress that, to help heal it. So not when you a small percentage of women that do need surgery for diastasis recti. So hopefully that helps women if if they're concerned during their pregnancy or postpartum that there are ways to um, help that. Yeah, thanks for giving all of those examples. Um, another thing that I would love to talk more about is prolapse, because I think that's another area where there's a lot of fear around this. And also just the fact that, you know, you give birth and there's you mentioned all the hormones and all this stuff and your body is not like 
the weeks after birth, that's not the permanent state of what your body is going to be like. There's a, It's like an injury that needs to heal. Just like if you hurt your knee, it's going to take time for that to heal. He just grew and pushed a baby out of you. Like that takes time to heal. And yeah, people might have prolapse and they might think, oh my gosh, this is permanent or, you know, I'm permanently damaged. So what are some thoughts around prolapse that you have? And can you can you be more specific about what that is? That way people can just be more educated about it. Definitely. So actually myself, I had a stage four prolapse after having my my 14 year old. And so essentially, so number one, prolapse means that there um there's pelvic organ descent or a downward movement of the organs from where they naturally should be sitting, essentially. And you can have bladder prolapse, that's called a cystocele. You can have a rectocele, which is the rectal wall that actually get is weakened and starts collapsing. You can have uterine prolapse. But the most important thing, so let's say if women are thinking, oh my God, like what happens if this happens to me? Number one, prolapse can also happen to women that have never had a baby. So I treat many women that have pelvic organ prolapse, and that be because they were in a career their whole life where they were lifting heavy objects. And perhaps they were lifting objects that were too heavy for them, or maybe they weren't breathing properly. So number one, one of the most quick and easy ways you can start today to decrease your risk for prolapse is if you're lifting anything, especially if it's a bit heavier, don't hold your breath. So that's one of the most important things that just like if you're at the gym, we should exhale as we lift that thing. So let's say if Sonia was lifting her baby, what I tell my patients is because that's how we activate the core muscles is to exhale and do a Kegel as they pick up their baby in car seat or exhale as they go to lift a big bag of dog food that they're putting in the car as they go to Costco or something like that. So that's the first thing that we should not be bearing down as we lift. Eat lots of fiber and don't get constipated. So prolonged constipation, especially if it's continued over, you know, downward pressure as people are trying to have a bowel movement, and that can create downward pressure of the organs. Number three, if you're pregnant, trying to really watch your posture and and watch how long you're uh, standing on your feet. So especially in the third trimester, if there's a lot of static standing, meaning constant downward press the pelvic floor. That doesn't mean it's the pressure downward. So even changing your position frequently, walking is excellent because when we walk, we're constantly shifting pressure from one leg to the next. So I think one of the most important things you can do is breathe and have some varied motion in the day. We were never meant to statically either stand all day or statically sit all day. That creates a lot of downward pressure. So, so hopefully that helps. But definitely, like Sonia said, even just breathing properly That's the most important thing you can do to prevent prolapse. And that could be even during labor. So if you are having a vaginal labor, having a good midwife or doula or birth coach or physiotherapist, that's what I do. I teach women, how should I be breathing so that I can get my uterus to do the work and breathe that baby down and out the vaginal canal without causing a lot of valsalva or like intense downward pressure. And, and thank goodness, there's so much more information about this now that most birthing centers and hospitals are so much better about putting women in the right position to birth their baby and not birthing on their back. That can create more prolapse because now you're trying to birth your baby uphill. So birthing positions, birthing breath, those are excellent ways to decrease your risk for prolapse if you're having a vaginal delivery. 
Could you talk about the constipation piece again? Because my um, internet had a poor connection and I just want to make sure people get that part. Right. Yeah. So one of the most important things to prevent prolapse, any type of prolapse, is to have A, a healthy diet with good fiber, B, be drinking enough water, be hydrating properly. Because let's say if you're really constipated, and especially if you have stool that's quite compacted and dry, what we do not want to be doing is holding our breath and straining to have those bowel movements. Even for children, that's the worst thing you can do. So a couple of easy things, other than hydration and good food and excellent fiber and plant-based diet, would be using what I call a squatty potty, or it could even be a stool in your house. So if you have a toddler or you happen to have a little, like have a footstool in your house, being able to sit on the toilet and putting your feet up on that stool actually puts your pelvis and your pelvic floor muscles in a more optimal position to have a more effortless bowel movement. And it's because it kind of helps separate the sit bones. So imagine like if you're in a deep squat in the forest, having a bowel movement or, or going pee, that deep squat position is how we're anatomically meant to have a bowel movement. And that's kind of what the squatty potty does. It has you kind of slightly leaning forward, kind of with your elbows on your knees, like you're reading a newspaper, and your feet up on a stool, could be on two yoga blocks. And just see if, if there are any people listening, if, if you ever do feel like you're needing just some easy tips, that Google the squatty potty. That's a great, <laughs> it's a great tool to have. You mentioned during birth, having a good team, like a midwife and or a doula or a coach. And I want to say that for me, I was a little bit skeptical that I would actually need a doula. I thought, well, I don't I don't need this. Like I've already done all these classes and like I know about, you know, how to use my body under, you know, strain. And I got a doula just because I read all this research just saying how important it was and how there was way better birth outcomes and I have to say that once things kicked into high gear, I was incredibly thankful that I had a doula. And that is her words were the only thing that got me through. And her words were the only things that reminded me to keep breathing or to make sounds like exhaling noise and all the things that I thought would not happen. Like, oh, I'm not going to make noise when I'm giving birth. And, you know, I don't need someone to coach me. I needed all of those things. So don't sell yourself short with expectations or maybe even like shame around making a noise because this is your body doing something really intense and having all of those resources and people there for you, regardless if you end up needing them or not, is better than not having it. Oh, I totally agree. I, I highly recommend having a doula and even, you know, if you think about it, we we still have the same DNA as we did, you know when we're cavemen, essentially, and no one, and especially in other cultures, we aren't supposed to birth alone. We're not, normally you'd have a whole team of women from your tribe helping you birth that baby. And that's what I feel like having a midwife and a doula or, you know, someone helping you through the process. And that's what I help women too with vocalization. I tell them your pelvic floor, because it's connected and, and works with your diaphragm, that has a role to play in your jaw. So I tell women that the most important thing you can remember, having your jaw relaxed and open, and it keeps the vagina relaxed and open. And using sounds that make the jaw open, like very low, guttural, kind of, like noises that, that kind of make your lower belly vibrate and have a down, like a downward, you know, even like oming and yoga, like, oh, those humming 
chanting, breathing, even if it's vocalizing out loud, at least that means you're breathing. If I see women holding their breath and they're not making much sound, then I worry that maybe their diaphragm and pelvic floor isn't getting a chance to help birth that baby out with the least amount of effort. So I think there's so much to be said for cultures around the world that actually encourage singing, chanting. Um, That's also how we optimize our vagus nerve. So during birth, we want to be in that rest and digest mode. And that is to do with deep breathing, meditation, chanting, gargling, even gargling water is one way you can optimize your vagal nerve. So those are all things we need for birth. There is a myth that we didn't talk about, and that's kegling. Like people think that, oh, pelvic floor, all I need to do is do some kegels and I'm good. But you also mentioned that pelvic floor isn't just about tightening. It's about learning how to relax the pelvic floor. So what are your thoughts on Kegels? When are they appropriate? And why is it just not enough to just Kegel? Good question. So (laughs) I kind of tell my patients, it's kind of like if any of us went to the gym and we were trying to strengthen a quad muscle or a hamstring, whatever it is, right? You cannot strengthen any muscle in your body by only doing half of the range of motion, right? So let's say if you're trying to strengthen your quad, you do a quad extension. If you just left your quad squeezing like that in extension, it's not going to work optimally, right? Because you got to ride a bicycle, to walk, quad and hamstring. We need that reciprocity between the muscle that's in balance with the, the other muscle, I guess is the best way to say it. So the reason you can't just tighten your pelvic floor all the time to get strong is A, it's not going to have a rest day. <laughs> B, it's not going to go through its full range of motion. And so again, that's where I use the analogy of doing a bicep curl or a quad extension or just walking. We always need muscles to be going on and off with every motion we do. So even to pedal a bicycle, right? You can't only have your quads on the downs, like on pushing down, right? You need you need the reciprocity between all our muscle groups to have high function. So that is one of my pet peeves is I think I get so many patients, they say, oh, Kareen, I don't think you can help me because I've already been doing Kegels. I've been doing thousands of them. And I'll say, well, <laughs> number one, you're doing way too many. Number two, I vaginally test their Kegel and most times they're not even using the right muscles. So that's that's a big myth too, is that it's easy to do a Kegel. It's actually in the research when they, when they uh, look at women doing pelvic floor contractions, most men and women are totally cheating the wrong muscle group or they're holding their breath or they don't let it go. Um, so again, like I said earlier, tight is just tight, but tight is not necessarily strong. So yeah, really important for the muscle to be able to lengthen and let go for it to actually have some strength and resiliency. And we want our mus- we want our pelvic floor to be elastic like a trampoline. And when it can be elastic, it can actually absorb a lot of force and generate a lot of power. So that's really important. And, and thanks for mentioning that. But yeah, just Kegel squeezing wouldn't even work for any muscle group in the body anyway, let alone the pelvic floor. That was probably my biggest takeaway from my very first pelvic floor physio session was I just thought, oh, this is just about Kegeling. And then I went and I learned all this other stuff. And I thought, wow, I I was really wrong. (laughs) And it's tricky because it's a muscle group. I'd say that's really common because it's a muscle group you cannot see. And same with the diaphragm. You can't tangibly put your finger on it. So that's where I think it's kind of both the diaphragm and the pelvic floor are kind of elusive, really, because we're so used to being able to touch something like a bicep muscle and go, oh, okay, there it is. I can, I can see it let go, right? And I think especially my patients that are high-level athletes, for them, it's the hardest thing to soften 
and actually let that muscle turn off. And so what I tell my patients is your muscles are kind of like an iPhone. If you don't give it time to recharge and for it to have time to actually turn off, you're going to have a muscle that gets over-recruited. And then what it does is it starts to recruit neighboring muscles to habitually all guard together. And that can be a recipe for disaster um, because that's where I see a lot of my, most of my patients actually come to me, not because they think they have a pelvic floor problem, but because they have a hip or a tailbone problem that just will not go away. I treat a lot of tailbone and pubic bone pain. But what's interesting is often it's the pelvic floor causing that problem. So I think that's really important, especially in cyclists. I see a lot of tailbone pain, perineal pain, uh, sit bone pain. So you know where your sit bones sit on your bicycle seat. If there's not equal pressure on those sit bones, that can be kind of a hip pelvis pelvic floor issue, right? Or even vaginal dryness. That was the other thing I wanted to mention for cyclists. I have a lot of women postpartum or menopause that if their estrogen have decreased, they're gonna their tissue is gonna be dry vaginally, and that could be the labia, could be the the actual vaginal muscles. So I tell people, it's kind of like when you go to the dentist and, you know, when they dry out your mouth and and suck all the spit out, (laughs) when your lips on your your gums at the dentist and there's no moisture there, it can kind of hurt. So think of how that feels on your lady bits after you've been on a bicycle for a couple hours. So super important for women to be aware of decreased estrogen when you're breastfeeding or menopause or even those that pre-perimenopause time, really important. And bioidentical hormones can help, but also if I have women that say, Crane, that's not something I want to use. And I said, that's okay. I'm looking into hyaluronic acid and that's an acid that's generated by our body naturally. It's hyaluronic acid is in a lot of facial products to hydrate your face. And that's what they inject into people's (laughs) lips and um, to make their face look less old, (laughs) but just as important for the lips on your face as it is for the lady lips for your vaginal lips. Okay. So that's really important that I don't see one. I don't want to see women chafing as they're cycling because of uh, low estrogen. Thanks for bringing that up as well. Do you have time for one more question? I do. Great. A big question that people ask me is about the guidelines of returning to sport because the blanket recommendation is waiting six to eight weeks, but then you also hear, well, just listen to your body. And that is like a varied statement. Like some people as it pertains to cycling, like I felt comfortable on my bike 10 days postpartum. I've known people who need to wait, you know, six months postpartum. So what's a good starting point for figuring out what to do to get back to sport? I think that's a great question. And, you know, again, to kind of, (laughs) I'm biased being a pelvic floor physio. So what I recommend to women is if they're seeing me in the clinic throughout their pregnancy, pretty darn good idea of how how easily they're going to return to fitness postpartum. So let's say during pregnancy, they're doing well, they're maintaining their fitness, they're feeling good, they're not having SI, pubic bone pain, and maybe, you know, even during delivery, if their delivery was hard, if, if they are able to, number one, sit on a bicycle seat, if they're, if they say, nope, that didn't hurt my labia, my pubic bone feels okay. And of course, the first couple times on the bike, I'd say, see how you feel, maybe do go on flat terrain, try 15, 20 minutes see how you feel. If there's no pain and it's not increasing their symptoms, then I think they're fine to do it. I think it all depends, um, number one, on your previous fitness level. Number two, it depends on how the pregnancy went. And so I think it's different for every female. I have some women that you're right. Maybe if they had triplets and they were on bed rest, it might take them longer to get back to their fitness. 
But if someone had their baby and they say, you know what, I felt so great after going for that walk, I'd be like, well, then great. Let's start building that. Let's let's start increasing the distance. Let's bit by bit start adding some hills. So I think it's so important, especially for I was one of those moms. I was like, if I don't get to exercise, I am mentally going to like lose my mind. <laughs> so I tell women it's so important that we're looking at our mental health, our emotional health, our relationships. And if, you know, I'd say one of the most important things we can be doing is exercising for stress relief. And and having a child is one of, for me, and I think for a lot of women was the most stressful thing in my life. It's a lot of change. So I think we need to be, me as a physio, I do as best I can get women back to whatever activities they want to do and do it safely. But I think, you know, especially during COVID, it is so necessary for us to have that mental health piece. And that's, taking a bit of time for yourself as a mom to get on the bike or go for a walk or go for a hike. I think we need to be advocating for that much more for women than what's out in the basic media. Yeah. So it's not just reductionist like, oh, you either need more time off just because, you know, you had a harder birth or you can get right back to it because you had an easy birth and your body's fine. Like it might not just be about what happened during birth. It's a more holistic approach to how you're feeling your mental health, your stress levels, all of those things come into a decision-making process when it comes to return to sport. Oh, I totally think so. And again, just like what they do with Olympic athletes is really factoring in, like looking at heart rate variability, how how stressed is the body as it's returning to that sport or activity? Is the person getting enough sleep? All those things. And so I love using as many tools as possible to help women say, yeah, am I recovering between my episodes of fitness that I am doing postpartum? And yeah, I have lots of women that had intense, insane births where they, or maybe during pregnancy, they were like, oh my goodness, Kareen, like my pubic bone pain, I like, I don't, I can't take one step. I can't even roll over in bed. And then as soon as they birth that baby, <laughs> for some people, they're like, oh my God, like the minute that baby was born, all my pubic bone pain was gone. And I, I felt like I could have done a marathon the next day. <laughs> so you're right. I think what happens in birth doesn't necessarily mean that the next day or a week later that the person's still going to have those sensations. It could just be the way the baby was positioned in the pelvis or whatever happened during birth. So I think it's it's important to keep reassessing every day and just saying, okay, today, how do I feel? What do I think I can do? Okay, reassess. How did that workout go? Oh, okay, maybe that was too much. Okay, back off the bus. Or maybe that wasn't enough. I was totally bored and didn't feel challenged. So I think it, yeah, it's, I think it's so unique for each person. And I think that's why it's important to get a unique assessment, right? There's no blanket answer. I, I, I always tell women that not everybody will I let them do a, a, a sit up at six weeks postpartum. Or I have some women, I just, I just had a patient a couple of weeks ago. She's a fitness uh, personal trainer and she was only one week postpartum. And I had her do a sit up and I checked her core muscles. I checked her function. And she did it perfectly. No bulging, popping, pooching, straining, no stress to the abdominal wall. I'm going to let you do a lot more than I normally one week postpartum because she did it. She had good control of her core muscles and her posture and she was handling things well. So I think that's, yeah, it's important. I, I totally believe we have to look at the whole person, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been really amazing. And I think there's going to be a lot of takeaways for people. And if no one's ever even heard of the pelvic floor, this is a really great starting point. Where can people find you and what resources can you offer for people who want to learn more? So, yeah, um, the best place to probably connect with me is on Instagram. And that's at Care Physio with a K, K-A-R-E-P-H-Y-S-I-O. 
And then I have a website and that's also carephysio.com in Kelowna, BC. Uh, yeah. And feel free to send me any comments, messages that you want via Instagram, because I'm always happy to answer those. And again, I'm always happy to dispel myths and, you know, there's no bad questions <laughs> at all. I can give Sonia some of the other links that I recommend to women, other amazing pelvic floor physios doing research in the field of fitness. One specific physiotherapist that I've mentioned to Sonia is Julie Weeb. She's a physiotherapist in the U.S. and she is phenomenal. She gives such great information about high impact sports and high level fitness. Uh, and those are the type of patients she treats all the time. So, and any other resources I can I can give to Sonia, and she can put them in the show notes. I also said to I said that I also love there's an app called Fitter Woman. F-I-T-R-W-O-M-A-N. And I love that app because it's an app that allows women to track their menstrual cycle, but to actually time their fitness training and nutrition with their menstrual cycle. And that is such an important upcoming kind of amazing area of research. We do not have enough research on women and their menstrual cycle and fitness. So maybe you guys have heard of that app before. I think it's a great app to really be proactive with how you're um, changing your nutrition and fitness throughout your menstrual cycle. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I was really excited when you told me about that app. I've had St Dr. Stacey Sims on the show to talk about that specifically. She does research in the physiology space, but th the fact that this app exists is fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was This is amazing, and I'm excited about all the resources as well. And yeah, thank you again. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Make sure to give Kareen five stars if you enjoyed that episode and take a screenshot and share the show with your friends or just tell your friends about it if they could benefit from it. We don't do this to be popular or to be fancy, but if you are getting great information, we just want everybody to have access to it so that they can be better every day. And that's our mission. And speaking of, I hope that I see you guys on my newsletter. I work really hard every single week to make sure that I am bringing to you really useful and thoughtful information. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. Bye.